Chris Hammer writes bestsellers with a distinctly Australian flavour and his latest, Treasure and Dirt, is very much typical of what he's doing. His fourth book, it's a gritty, hard-to-put-down crime thriller and it's no surprise Chris is winning awards as well as an international audience. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Chris talks about transitioning from journalism to successful fiction writing. He explains a bit about why he thinks Australian crime fiction is growing in popularity around the world and about the blossoming of Outback Noir, though by no means all of Chris's books are set in the Outback. We've got three ebook copies of Treasure and Dirt to give away to three lucky readers in our crime giveaway. You can enter that draw on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Chris's books and social media contacts are also to be found on the website. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, you can find more exclusive bonus content, including Chris answering the getting to know you quickfire questions by becoming a subscriber on our Binge Reading on Patreon page. For no more than a cup of coffee a month, you'll be able to get bonus content and have the satisfaction of supporting us in our work. But now, here's Chris. Hello there, Chris, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi there, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, just getting the geographic location set at the beginning, you're talking from the Australian capital of Canberra, aren't you? Yep, that's right. And you're a Canberra-born man, are you, fellow? No, I was born in Tassie, actually, Tasmania, Ah, but I've lived... Most of my life in Canberra, I grew up here. I tried to escape several times, but I kept getting sucked back. Mainly um, being a journalist, it's a good place to be, the capital. So I did politics a lot as a journalist, but also my wife, she's an academic. She specialises in international history and history of the Asia-Pacific. And for her, the uh, Australian National University, the ANU, is based in Canberra. So it's kind of perfect for both of us. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned the journalism. You had a stellar journalism career. And looking at your life from the outside, it, it looks like you replaced a stellar career in journalism with an equally stellar one in books. Because right from the beginning, your book, the first book, Scrublands, was a Winner, a win award winner, and an international bestseller. Tell us how you managed to make that transition. <laughs> you make it sound so sort of easy <laughs> and inevitable, <laughs> but it wasn't because indeed, Scrublands isn't my first book. Like many oh. writers, of course, there's the one or two in the desk drawer that will never see the light of day. But I did write two non-fiction books. I quit full-time journalism for a while and went freelance, and I wrote two. They're like travel writing, but travelling in Australia. One through the hinterland down the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, which is the biggest river system in Australia, right at the peak of the worst drought in recorded history, in the history of European settlement, which actually 
provided me with the settings for Scrublands and others of my book. And then I did a second book called The Coast, which was travelling down the east coast of Australia, which helped provide in some ways the setting for my second crime book, Silver. And I've said before, I've learned, I learned three things by doing those books. One, that I could actually do it because until you write a book, you know, it seems like climbing Everest. But I found I could do it. Two, I found I really, really liked it, not just having the book on the shelf, but the process. And the third thing I found was there's no money in writing books. So I, so in the end, I had to go back and get a real job again as a journalist back in the press gallery. And I, I pretty much wrote Scrublands just more, not quite as a hobby, but for my own self-satisfaction. So I was more as surprised as anyone when that actually became a success. And But that's that transition from non-fiction, I mean, non-fiction probably came pretty readily to you being a journalist, but the switch to fiction, how big a jump was that? Well, the non-fiction I did, a lot of journalists will, will it's just part of their sort of, I guess, their career as a journalist will try writing a book and often where I was covering federal politics, journalists, ambitious journalists will write a biography of the next up-and-coming politician. And it's very factual. It's very fact-based. I, my books were more like travel writing, which is more like narrative nonfiction. You're telling a story. You can be impressionistic. You can have a bit of purple prose, if I can put it like that. You're recounting a story. So it's almost like a halfway house. And I was, I was listening to another author just the other day on a podcast, and she was saying that she'd written travel nonfiction before going to fiction. I thought, ah, that sounds like a, a similar sort of trajectory to me. Yes. Well, you're into book number four now, which in Australia and New Zealand is out just in another couple of weeks, and it's called Treasure and Dirt here. But it's going to be released in the UK and Europe in January, and it's going to be called Opal Country. So any of our people listening who might want to follow up, it's Opal Country on the other side of the world, and it's Treasure and Dirt this side. Um, they're all standalone works, but they do have a linking narrative of some of the characters and, and the background themes that are coming through. And Treasure and Dirt picks up on one of the detectives from the earlier series, doesn't it? Tell us a bit about your Ivan uh, Lusich. Yeah, so the first three books I wrote, crime books, uh, Scrublands, Silver and Trust, feature the main protagonist is a journalist called Martin Scarsden. And then by the time Trust comes along, uh, we also get the point of view of his partner, Mandalay Blonde or Mandy Blonde. So those three can be read as standalones, but they are also a kind of a series. And the main characters are Martin and Mandy. Treasure and Dirt is a standalone. In, it has completely different main characters. Martin does get a mention, and there's a couple of the minor characters from the first three books do, do pop up in Treasure and Dirt. So it's, uh, it's the same sort of universe, if you like, which is contemporary Australia. There's two point of view characters in Treasure and Dirt. Ivan Lukic is homicide detective. He is in the first three books, but as a very minor character, he's the offsider to the main um, police officer there, Morris Montefiore. He turns up, he's rather, uh, he has his own problems, 
he has problem, some problems with his past and his family that it's just mentioned in passing in Treasure and Dirt. He's got a poker machine addiction. He's very disturbed about what's been happening inside the police force, particularly to his boss, Morris Montefiore. So he comes to the story with a bit of baggage. And then he's sent to an outback town called Finnegan's Gap. It's a fictitious town, but it's based somewhat on the real Australian outback opal mining town of Lightning Ridge. And what's happened is a body has been discovered, an opal miner who's been crucified and more or less left to rot down his opal mine. So Ivan Lukic is sent from Sydney to investigate. He's meant to be with his boss, Morris Montefiore, but he can't make it. So he's assigned a very young and inexperienced detective from the far west of New South Wales, from Burke, a young detective called Nell Buchanan. And she's been assigned because she's actually in her days in uniform. She spent some time in this town, Finnegan's Gap. So that's the sort of setup. As they investigate the murder, more and more secrets, if you like, start to emerge but also things from Nell and Ivan's past start catching up with them as well. So there's a kind of a dual-track narrative, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the same, you mentioned about the same universe. In the three first book, the first three books, it's definitely against a background of corruption, both in high places in society and even reaching into the police force. So you get the impression that there definitely is some problem of leakage in the police force, and that becomes even clearer perhaps in this book. Um, There's an edgy cynicism to it, isn't there? And and I gather that you've developed this genre called Outback Noir, and it fits perfectly, this book, I think. Can you tell us a bit about Outback Noir? Well, it's. I think it's, in some ways, it's probably a bit of a lazy description in that a lot of us Australian writers are sort of pushed together in this group. So my first book, Scrublands, is not really in the outback, but it's certainly far western New South Wales, so fair cop. But my second book, Silver, is set on the coast, and my third book, Trust, is set in Sydney. So actually, this is the first of my books that is truly set in the outback. I think what happened is uh, Jane Harper's book, The Dry, was a huge success both in Australia and internationally. Um, and as that came out, I was writing Scrublands. It came out. There's other Australian authors who have set book in a in the countryside. Let's say most notably, a recent author is probably Gary Disher. And now there's quite a few more. Sarah Bailey had also written a book around the same time called The Dark Lake. So it seems to have an appeal for people. Most Australians live in cities. So I think it helps, you know, it helps the imagination and escape. And, of course, you can have fictional towns and you can make up entire, yeah, entire towns and settings and populations. In a way, you can't so much with an established city and no-one's going to, you know, my third book, Trust, is set in Sydney. It's kind of an imagined Sydney but I'm not about to make up a fictitious city of millions of people on the east coast of Australia. I mean, that that would just not be feasible. Mm. But it does seem to appeal to the international readers, you know, so people in the UK, people in the US, wherever. And I think 
there's something about a small town setting that helps fire the imagination of the readers. It's also having a small confined space actually helps with plotting too in a purely technical sense because people can run into each other, which in a small town is likely in a big city. It would it might be a bit of a stretch sometimes. So for a whole lot of reasons, it seems it seems to be a thing. And part of it's, I guess, a part of it's a marketing thing. Oh, you know, here's the latest Australian you know, book or Outback Noir book. There's a very well-known journalist in, a, in Australia called Laurie Oakes, he, who's a big crime fan. He's called it Dingo Noir, which I kind of like the sound of. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, the sort of feeling of a contained township or, or area. And in all of your books, you've got the most wonderful graphic maps at the front, which give you a little bit of a picture of the setting. And I wondered, I mean, I wondered whose idea those were for starters. And then secondly, whether that was how you approached your writing, whether you sort of were quite a visual writer that you saw things visually. I think I do see many things visually and playing out, you know, when people interacting is playing out as a scene, if you like, almost like a screenplay. And then descriptions of towns and whatever I see visually. I spent a long time as a television uh, reporter, so I was very used to writing to pictures. The maps came about more or less by happenstance. So when you're writing a, a book, a crime book in particular, there'll be a lot of stuff that an author will think of and write down that doesn't appear in the narrative. So typically for a crime writer, they'll have a, a timeline of when events happen and where each person is. So, for example, you'll need to, you know, if, if the killer needs to be somewhere and then go and kill someone, dispose of the body, then, you know, change their clothes, reappear, you need the, the timeline to make sure they've got enough time to do that and that, that people aren't in two places at once, etc. So that's a... That's probably a pretty standard thing. When I was writing Scrublands, I it's set in a town called Riversend, but it's a fictional town. So I started drawing a map, not with the intention of it being published, but just for my own reference, just like that kind of timeline, um, because I wanted I wanted to make sure that buildings didn't change locations or distances didn't change. If Martin walked five minutes to the bookstore in chapter one. He wasn't taking half an hour in chapter 20, particularly as I was writing it over an extended period of time, you know, in my in my spare time. So, and then when I finally got around to submitting it to an agent, I had my very crude hand-drawn map, but I thought, oh, I'll put it in the front. And, you know, it might, it might just make it easier for them to understand what's going on. And then that's what went to the to the publisher. And we then, in discussion with the publisher, uh, Jane Poffreyman, we decided that we would actually put the map in, not my terribly crudely drawn one. She commissioned a cartographer and it just it didn't look very good at all because for a real cartographer, the essence, of course, is accuracy. And they had there was nothing to to you know, judge it on because it was all made up. So then Jane, and I'm not sure how she found him, this brilliant called Alexander Potochnik, who's done the maps in all in all the books. 
The interesting thing is he'd only recently arrived in Melbourne from Slovenia. So most of the examples that he gave us, which were fantastic, were of these little towns in the Balkans and Dubrovnik and places like that. And with Scrublands, he hadn't actually been to a, a country town. So fortunately, I had stacks and stacks of photos from, from my when I was travelling for those non-fiction books. So I was supplying him photos saying this looks like that and this is what wheat silos look for, like, for example. And similarly with Trust, he, he hadn't been to Sydney, so he lives in Melbourne, so it gave him a good excuse to go and see Sydney. But anyway, after the, I, we really like the map in Scrublands. I, I love them. I've actually got commissioned him to colour them, so I've got some nice big prints of them. So that's just become a feature of the book, so I really like them. Yeah, perhaps we ought to explain they are 3D, aren't they? Not just a flat map, they're very much 3D uh, graphic representations. Yeah, they're more like illustrations than, than maps. Yeah, yeah, they are really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the photographs. Do, did you refer a lot to the photographs when you were writing the book? Not really, no. 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 Just they're sort of in, in my imagination. I, I referred to them when I was writing the non-fiction books for accuracy, yeah, but not yeah, so much yeah, for the fiction yeah. ones. And I'm interested in your process. With books like these, which are complexly plotted, do you do a very detailed outline or do you still rely on sitting down in a chair and having it develop as you go along? They evolve very much as I go along. I'm definitely, you know, you have this division often discussed with, particularly with crime authors, the difference between plotters and pantsers, uh, plotters being yeah. the ones who plot it out, then start the narrative, and pantsers are the ones who write by their seat of their pants. I'm definitely towards the pantser end of the spectrum. I wish I wasn't. I mean, being a plotter sounds far more efficient. My problem is if I try and plot in advance and then start writing, no sooner do I start writing than I get a better idea. And so the story yeah. evolves. But I'm not just writing it hoping I know where it's going to end up. I have, you know, as I as the story evolves, I'm constantly thinking forward, thinking how, how's it going to, where's this heading and is this going to work? I'm probably getting a bit better at that with experience. Also, I mean, there's, there's multiple sort of plot lines, if you like, and I've probably got an idea of where one or two of those are going to end up, particularly those sort of, well, the emotional story probably more than the actual crime story. So I might know where it's, uh, I'm thinking it's going to end up, but I'm not sure how to get, get there. So the, sto yeah. so the stories change. The Scrublands... I was kind of learning on the job, so I rewrote the end of the of the book three times. You know, like throw away forty thousand words, fifty thousand words, completely rewrite. I did that with Silver a little bit, but not with Trust, and not really with Treasure and Dirt. So I mm -hmm. I think I'm getting better as the story evolves. You know, working out how to bring it all back together again. Yeah, and you know, some writers talk about this thing of their characters refuse to do things that they want them to do, that the characters start to dictate the story. Has that happened at all with you, particularly in Treasure and Dirt, without giving away any spoilers, of course? I look for sure. And you'll have minor characters begin life, if you like, as a kind of a plot point. So your protagonist needs to learn some piece of information and go, oh, I know they can meet. This happened in Scrublands, for example, there's a bloke there called Culture Harris that is meant to, initially was just meant to be someone who told Martin Skarsden something important, you know, pointed him in, in the right direction. 
but he kind of grew and, and he ends up being a pretty important character by the end of the book. So that happens quite a bit. But yeah, and the characters evolve. I personally, as a reader, I like character-driven books probably more than I like plot-driven books. So it's important to me that characters are complex. Right from the start, before I, as I was writing Scrublands, I was thinking, I don't want black and white characters. I don't want the goodies over here and the baddies over there. I want the baddies to have some good characters and I want the goodies to have some bad characters and, and make it complex. And I think that makes it a more... Uh, engrossing read for the for readers as well. Yes, that's right. Looking back over your career, moving on perhaps from talking about the individual books, we've mentioned about your time as a journalist. Apart from the, you've mentioned already about the non-fiction books that you did, The River and the Coast, but was there other ways in which your journalism career has fed into making fiction writing easier or, or reflected in your fiction writing? Yeah, look, I, there's a whole lot of things about being a journalist that I, I think have helped. One is just the discipline of writing. In journalism, you do the best you can in the time available. And there's certainly no opportunity to wait around for inspiration. You can't ring up your editor and go, oh, look, I don't think I'll file a story today. I'm not feeling inspired. So <laughs> so you learn that. You, you learn, I think, doing television was very useful because even in a half hour or 40 minute sort of documentary, there's a very limited amount of words you can use. So you get to appreciate the value of each word and the weight of each word. And so over time that builds up. I mean, many journalists don't are not able to make the transition from writing journalistically, which tends to use a lot of um, shorthands and cliches, which is a very effective way of, of, of communicating, but does not read well as a, in, in a narrative or a fiction book. Also, I think because I mean, I, I travel a lot internationally. I did a lot of political stories, both in Australia and overseas. And I think it gave me some insights into how the world really works, so that how, peop, how power works. So I think, in a sense, that stood me in good stead as well. I also wondered if your international experience helped you to frame the Australian experience more clearly and sharply, having been away from it. Because these books are very, very Australian. They just really absolutely, you know, capture the Australian spirit really well. Look, that's really nice of you to say so. I mean, it's not, it wasn't intentional because, as I said, when I was writing Scrublands, I was hoping it would get published. By the time I'd finished it, I was reasonably confident it was good enough to be published. But because my experience with my previous books that were, were very well received, and, you know, one prize here and got shortlisted for a couple of other things that but just didn't sell anything. I thought Scrublands might get published, but I had, I didn't think in my sort of wildest dreams that it would be published internationally. So I wasn't trying to be particularly Australian or particularly non-Australian. I, I think a lot of authors with ambitions, particularly if they want to sell into the United States, either overemphasise the Australianness or really try and underemphasize it, try and, you know, make it easily digestible for an American audience. And both of which I suspect is, is a mistake. But for me, it was just kind of, I was just trying to write a good book and hoping that it might get published in Australia. So I wasn't at all conscious of being, you know, overly or underly Australian. 
Mm. I have read online some of your commentary about why you think Americans in particular find Australian stories appealing. And I wonder if you could just recap a little bit on that. What do the Americans like about Australia, do you think? So I've travelled, I first went to the US when I was 19 and travelled all around for months and then members of my family lived there. So I used to go there a fair bit and travel around. So, And then I went back several times as a reporter as well. Americans like Australia for a number of reasons. One is I think in some ways they can feel a bit alone in the world and, and the burden of world leadership can weigh heavily on them. So it's they kind of like it that there's other countries that are a bit like them, like, you know, Britain and Australia, New Zealand, whatever. But Australia, they identify because of the size of the country, because of the, you know, the idea of the frontier. They see Australia mm. as a more innocent version of America that, we're kind of like America used to be. Now, I don't think that's I don't think that's right. I mean, I think their idea of what America used to be is probably not accurate. You know, and of course, there's this assumption that countries like Australia and New Zealand lag the US in a, in all sorts of ways. I'm not sure that's correct either. But I think that's this this view that Australia has enough in common that. It's, you know, it's, you can identify with it if you're American, but it's somehow, you know, it's like a little brother or something like that. It's interesting, say, in Europe, the, my books are sold in translation in France and Italy and Germany and places like that. And I think for the, the, the French really like Australia too, because they said it's this very exotic place, because I think the size and the climate and the wildlife and whatever. So there's a sort of, they find it rather intriguing as well in a different kind of way. And I think maybe the Germans are the same. And of course, a lot of them travel here in New Zealand, whatever. So, so it's interesting the 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 view, and I and I think you know for the British they have this kind of you know fondness for Australia and New Zealand, you know, going back to the days of empire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, although the the Aussies have come closer to re- declaring a republic than we have, we haven't quite got there yet, though, have we? <laughs> yeah, well, we're a long way off. We're a long way off. <laughs> It looks close at one time, but then it kind of faded again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, this is the joys of binge reading. And so I'd like to turn now and talk to you a little bit about your reading tastes and whether you like to binge read in the past or today. I'm still, I do like binge reading. The trouble is I don't get, get the time so much. So I'm reading, I read yeah. quite steadily. I read. Nowadays, I read a lot of crime fiction because I'm sent a lot of books and I'll be interviewing someone, you know, at a festival or something. So, of course, I have to read their books or someone sends me a book to be endorsed. So I'm reading a lot more crime fiction than I would have beforehand. So I really liked reading good crime fiction. I always liked the old Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett type books. And I like some other good, you know, Australian writers, particularly Peter Temple, people like uh, the American Michael Connolly, etc. So I read a lot of crime now, but I also like to sort of, if I when I get a chance to take a break and read some read some more kind of uh, literary fiction, contemporary fiction, I guess. So I just read Mayflies by Andrew R. Hagen, which I just I just loved, and I think one of the reasons I loved it so much is because it wasn't a crime book. <laughs> Actually, I was going to ask you that. Right out at the beginning, why did you choose crime as your genre? 
Okay, so I didn't think I could do nonfiction again because I just I started working again full time, very demanding job. So I didn't have the time or the money to, to, to do nonfiction. I didn't think I was a good enough writer to write like a really literary book. And plus, I didn't have an idea. So I thought if I wrote crime fiction, the plot element of it would give me a skeleton at least to drive the book forward and give it a narrative arc and a shape. And then I could do whatever else I wanted to do within that sort of boundaries. As I said, I like the um, those old crime fiction books, uh, the hard-boiled detective type ones, Stashiel Hammett, Raymond Chandler, you know, the ones that inevitably when they were made into movies starred Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. But also when I went to university in my early 20s to study journalism, my writing teacher who's teaching like newspaper feature and magazine writings was Peter Temple, who then became oh. later on a most acclaimed Australian crime fiction author. And in fact, his last book, Truth, won the Miles Franklin Award, which is Australia's most prestigious literary award. And that's very unusual here and anywhere else, I guess, to have a so-called genre book win a major literary prize like that. They're fantastic books and show such command of the language and the Australian vernacular and pose some really interesting kind of moral questions. So I thought, look, I'll I'll give that a go. I, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I can do that. And and I'm going to stick with it because I really there's something about it I really like because it's a very broad canvas. You have the, I guess, the discipline of the plot, the mystery of the crime, but then you can overlay that with really interesting characters, personal dilemmas, emotional development, moral questions, observations on society. And there's a lot in, if you read a lot of crime, it, it tends to pick up on what's happening in society at the time. So you can see right now, mm. for example, there's there's quite a few crime books that, if you like, are picking up, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, whatever, on the Me Too movement. There's ones that pick up on environmental concerns. And if you go back sometimes, the, the fear would be more of the serial killer. So that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, maybe the serial killer was... And I think it's a lot of it's just crime writers going... What's going to grab people's attention? What what are people scared of right now? What's worrying them? So it's almost, mm. it's not some big didactic decision to give a lecture on this issue or that issue. It's just, you know, what's in the zeitgeist at the moment and you pick it up and you write about it. So that's an interesting thing about crime fiction too. And, and the best crime fiction, I think, does kind of transcend its genre. So it it speaks more widely and appeals more widely. Now, I know that Peter Temple sadly has died, but did you ever have a chance to talk with him as one crime author to another? No, I tell you he died before Scrublands was published. So, oh, I, did he? Yeah, sorry. Probably not that long before, to be honest. It may have even been the same, may have been the same year or the year before he died. So, that, I mean, yeah, that's quite, that's quite sad. Mind you, the sort of marks he used to give me at uni, I'm not sure he would have liked Scrublands much. <laughs> <laughs> now you've mentioned your your previous um, experience in TV. Have you had any interest so far from you know filmmakers or TV stations for your books, for your producers for your books? Yeah, so Scrublands has been optioned for a kind of a television series, six one-hour television series, and what that means if it's optioned is 
the production companies pay some money and that gives them exclusive rights to develop it. So then they can go out and, and get try and attract interest from broadcasters and hire writers and all that sort of thing. So that's what's happened with Scrublands. It's still in development. Fingers crossed it's going to go ahead. There's been some interest from broadcasters both in Australia and internationally and streaming services. So... But the trouble is, until it goes ahead, it, you know, it's nothing's certain. So fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. I must admit that there were sort of certain aspects of Treasure and Dirt that made me think of the Mad Max movies <laughs> because <laughs> you've got this religious, you know, this crazy religious cult. You've got kind of no-hoper kind of dreaming guys who spend their life underground looking for the opals and and I thought, you know, there was a certain Australian theme, even the kind of slightly weird Australian theme coming through there. <laughs> okay, I hadn't made that connection at all, but if you it hadn't, oh, that's really. Yeah. <laughs> it might appeal to a, a producer or a director for the same reason. <laughs> it's quite visual, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Look, just circling around and looking back down the the aisles of time, looking back over your fiction career, is there anything you would change about how it's progressed? Oh no, no. I'm look. I'm living the dream. So <laughs> most authors are really time poor because they can't make enough money to write full time. So people are, you know, have their family commitments, they're working full time or part time and they're writing, you know, late at night, stolen hours on weekends, that sort of thing. I'm really fortunate now in the books have done um, well enough that I now write full time. I really love what I'm doing. So it's, no, I wouldn't change a thing. How long did you go? How long ago did you go full time on the fiction? Before Scrublands was published, actually, it started getting oh, right. started yeah. getting book yeah. deals in Australia and the US and the UK. So I had to make this decision. It wasn't that hard because I'd actually lost my job as a journalist shortly before in the company I was working for, the publisher of Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. I was working for them in the press gallery. But I was doing video production and they just cut the whole video division. So I lost my job then, which in retrospect was really fortunate because I got a payout. And, <laughs> oh, a, yeah. and a few months later, I would have just quit anyway because I got these book deals. I had a very short spell as a political advisor, which was a really good job, but probably unsustainable because it had so much travel. It wasn't really compatible with my family circumstances. But then we got these book deals and I was able to actually you know, resigned from that job and and now I write full time. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm loving it, as you might imagine. Yeah. Looking over the next 12 months or so, what have you got on your desk or new projects you're developing? So, <laughs> I was hoping I'd be on a book tour publicising Treasure and Dirt, which, of course, with, with the east coast of Australia in lockdown, and not able to travel to those parts of Australia that aren't in lockdown. I'm beaving away writing. So I'm, I'm working on another book already. Partly That's partly because of time constraints, but also there's a, there's a lag between the time you fi- finish your final edit and the time the book comes out, you know, two or three months. And I just think psychologically I need to move on as well. So... Otherwise, as it comes up to publication date, I get very anxious about how the book's going to go, how it's going to be received. So it really helps if I'm already moved on to another project. 
So, you know, if I, if I get a bad review or something, I can go, ah, oh, well, who cares? Wait till you see this next one. <laughs> and are you able to give us any hints about is it going to continue in a similar vein to the rest? I mean, after Treasure and Dirt, I'm still wanting to know what happens with Ivan. Yeah, no, it's going to be Ivan and Nell again, particularly Nell. Oh, that's, good. That's what I'm good. That's what I'm thinking. All the books, the books, the structure of the books are are evolving a bit. The first two books, Scrublands and Silver, are told very much from Martin's perspective. So it's not they're not first person, but they're very close third person. So the reader can read what Martin is thinking and what he's observing about the world, but no one else. You can't see in anyone else's head. And Scrublands, although it's very complex in the sense there's four or five plot lines intertwined, it's actually the structure is simple. Martin arrives in a town and then it's this chronological narrative that goes from beginning to end. Silver is similar, except there's flashbacks. Trust evolves again. You've got two points of view alternating between Martin and Mandy. Treasure and Dirt are the same, except the delineation between the point of views isn't as strict in that if you swap between Nell and Martin quite a bit. This next one is going to probably have three points of view and different timelines. So kind of a more complex structure. Of course, a more complex structure does not necessarily mean a better book. You know, often the more simple a story is or more simply a story is told, the the more powerful it can be. So I have to be careful I don't in, in, in writing in a different kind of structure or form that I'm not losing the, the sort of strength of the book. And, of course, you certainly don't want to lose the readership or have the readership feel in any way cheated or anything like that. But, I look, mm. I don't think, you know, if you like Scrablands, you know, you probably like Silver and Trust. If you like Treasure and Dirt, you'll probably like the books that follow up, yeah. Yeah. I did wonder, I mean, knowing that you were a journalist and, and that Martin, your first protagonist, was also obviously extremely um, fully rounded as a journalist, so you, you naturally think, oh, well, a lot of your personal experience went into that. Did you find it hard to let Martin go to write this first book where he isn't really, he's only there mentioned in passing now and then as a name? Was it hard to let him go? Look, in some senses, the problem I had is he's not like this hands-off, dispassionate, objective investigator in the same way that, that say, you know, Poirot or Miss Marple or something is. If you have, yeah. a, if you have a character like that, they, you can just have many, many books. And it works very well, obviously. But with Martin and Mandy, there's, it's an emotion, there's an emotional content in each of those three books. And that was my problem. If I wanted to continue, did I was I then starting to almost fabricate, you know, emotional situations for them? Or if I didn't and I, they just became this kind of objective, dispassionate investigator, would readers be missing something that they valued in the previous books? So that's yeah, why yeah. I thought, look, we'll give Martin and Mandy a break. They kind of deserve a break, I think. <laughs> that doesn't mean I won't come back to them. I may well come back to them, but I just need the right the the right story. And in the meantime, yeah. this other story kind of come into my mind, if you like. So I'm yeah. working on yeah. that at the moment. And who knows? Maybe there, there, there'll be a book where all the characters intersect 
I don't know. I, it's just I don't have anything planned. It's just a possibility, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's fabulous and we have run out of time. So just do you like to meet with your readers or to interact with your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? Look, I really do like interacting with readers, which is the great pity of not being able to do a book tour. Online, I have a web page, which is chrishammerauthor.com. That has news about upcoming events, etc. But there's no way of interacting there. I have a Facebook author page, and that's where I can interact with with people. And I'm also on Instagram as well. I do have a Twitter handle, but I don't really do Twitter. That's a bit of a hangover from the days of being a journalist. So I don't, so don't try and contact me through Twitter. Try and contact me either through Instagram or through that Facebook author page. That's fantastic, Chris. Thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking today. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.